Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Welcome back to Beaumarchais and the Figaro Trilogy. This is James Conlon. That's the way it is with modern husbands. Unfaithful on principle, capricious by nature, and out of pride, jealous. Those are not my words, but rather of the Countess Rosina, whom we just left at the end of the Barber of Seville, as she joyfully celebrated her rescue and nuptials, both accomplished through the machinations of the greatly inventive Figaro. She has now been married for three years to the Count of Almaviva. His name translates as Lively Soul. Lively indeed. In the ensuing time, he has developed a roving eye, and as the lord of the manor, seems to have considerable opportunities to pursue his prey. And at the moment, he has turned his gaze to his wife's servant, Susanna, who is the fiancé of his servant, Figaro. The Marriage of Figaro, the second play of the Figaro trilogy by Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais, 1784, and its operatic adaptation by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, 1786, stand as two masterpieces of their respective genre. I want to look at these works today from the standpoint of class struggle, master against servant, aristocracy versus the serving class as pertains to pre-revolutionary France, and the battle of the sexes, germane to all times and ages. It is not possible, in the length of time afforded to a podcast, to study these statements in depth. I do so in an essay which, I should mention, you can find along with a synopsis on the same page where you find this podcast on Los Angeles Opera's website. As I scan the opera to give you a particular perspective, it can sometimes be frustrating only hearing short excerpts and snippets. But this podcast is not designed as a hearing of the opera. There is no shortage of great recordings available, but rather as another window through which to peer at this marvelous work when you do listen to it. Back to the dynamics governing this work. The first is the inevitable tension between rulers and the ruled, and the second is the confrontational magnetism between the sexes that both drives the species, society, and personal relations forward and, at the same time, holds them in an unending gridlock for dominance. The Barber of Seville is pure comedy. The Marriage of Figaro is a more sophisticatedly nuanced comedy of manners, upgraded to social criticism. It registers a point in the history of marriage's bumpy road from feudalism to post-enlightenment liberalism. Beaumarchais respects the three unities, action, time, and place, which were still obligatory in French theater. He squeezes all the action into one day and calls attention to that with the work's subtitle, La Folle Journée, The Insane or Crazy Day. Mozart captures the mood of that craziness from the first note of the unique and unusual overture. It is 
as if he distills the intrigues in the Almaviva household on this hectic day and speeds them up like a movie running too quickly. It was unusual in Mozart's time to start an overture almost inaudibly, but he employs a surprise effect to telescope the upcoming comedy. As mentioned in the previous podcast, Mozart held the older Italian composer Giovanni Paisiello in great esteem, and we will see how many times there are subtle references to his Barber of Seville, which had played in Vienna to great success. His overture also starts softly and builds up with bubbling energy. revolves around the practice, use, and abuse of the feudal Trois du Seigneur, which holds that the lord of the manor is entitled to pass the night with any woman in his domain on the eve of her wedding. Crudely put, privileged men took advantage of, quote-unquote, unprivileged women. This practice stands at the spoke of the whirling wheel of La Folle Journée, as it is emblematic of both class struggle and the battle of the sexes. First, class struggle. On the eve of the French Revolution, the marriage of Figaro sets out a competition for power between the aristocratic Count Almaviva and his valet Figaro. The playing field is not equal. It is defined by rigid class distinction. But there is a game of one-upmanship between these men that has a history, and they now seemed locked in a lifelong codependent relationship. This theme will be revisited in Mozart's next opera, Don Giovanni, between the Don and his servant, Leporello. The competition affords the servant a chance to beat his master at his own terms. In Figaro's first of three arias, he vents his rage at the Count. If you wish to dance, I will play the tune. It seems clear where Beaumarchais' sympathies are, and he implies that the distinctions between human beings should be measured not by their birthrights, but by their essence. At the end, this aria too contains a reference to Paisiello. 
of the characters have at least one aria to define them. We know Bartolo well from The Barber of Seville. His character is already established, pompous, disdainful, and vindictive. Mozart and Da Ponte create a speech for him in praise of vengeance, La Vendetta. It was clearly inspired by Paisiello, whose aria La Calunia, Calumny, or Slander, was sung by Don Basilio. Mozart selects the same key, D major, and given that there is no source for this aria in the original Beaumarchais, one can easily conclude that, while providing Bartolo with a great aria, it was also an homage to Paisiello. Here is Paisiello to remind you. The young page Cherubino is at the foretext of the Battle of the Sexes. Following Beaumarchais' lead, Mozart and Da Ponte have directed his role to be sung by a woman. In his adolescent way, he is in love with all women. He is in love with love. He amorously flits from flower to flower, wanting to pick them all at once. He exhibits all of the characteristics of a future rake, a budding Almaviva at best, a Don Giovanni at worst. Mozart also characterizes the peasants, whom Figaro corrals to sing praises to the Count for supposedly abolishing the droit du Seigneur. He chooses G major, a neutral key often associated with simplicity, or with peasants. Papageno, Despina, Zerlina, and Mazzetto are examples. The opening phrase, similar in rhythm, tonality, and tempo to Figaro's first entrance in Paisiello's Barber. First, Mozart's chorus. Then, Paziello's Figaro.
Mozart gives all of his characters an aria. There are two distinct categories, a reflective or confessional aria, one in which the character expresses private feelings and thoughts to the public, or an active aria, which involves interaction and is sung to other characters. We now come to Figaro's second aria, the only active one of the three. He describes military life with lots of social commentary on the part of Beaumarchais to young Cherubino. It contains the same signature descending interval as Bartolo from Paisiello's Barber. Not surprising that the same bass, Francesco Perucci, sang both roles. Recall the beginning of Bartolo's aria from Paisiello. Here it is again. And here is Mozart again. The act finishes in a military march with a flourish of trumpets and timpani. Mozart and da Ponte rightfully omitted the Countess's rather inconspicuous arrival in Act I of Beaumarchais so as to give her a grand and expository entrance. She sings a deeply moving cavatina, a term freely used for an introductory aria, immediately establishing the depth of her character. She laments her lost love and her husband's infidelity. Musically, it shows unmistakable signs of Mozart's knowledge and admiration for Paisiello, as it closely resembles Rosina's Act I aria in tonality, mood, and orchestration. First, the introduction to the first of the Countess's two reflective arias.
Now Rosina in Act One of Paisiello's The Barber of Seville. Here is the Countess's opening phrase in Figaro. And here the same Rosina, whom Paisiello first introduced to us. Both arias have a touching epilogue. Listen especially to the use of the clarinets, a recent newcomer to the classical orchestra, and the bassoons in both works. Here is Mozart. And here is Paisiello. The relationship between the Countess, Rosina of the Barber of Seville, and her servant Susanna and future wife de Figaro is warm and amical. Her name, drawn from the Book of Daniel, identifies her as a model of chastity and fidelity. Though their friendship should be constricted by class structure, they relate to each other as if in a world of equals. The fact is, as is often the case in Mozart's operas, the women are more evolved. Rosina's inborn nobility and empathic soul distinguish her. So also does Susanna's innate intelligence, wit, and refinement. She stands out in an era in which the servant was assumed not to possess any of those qualities. Now Carabino has his second aria. The first act was a confession to Susanna, and this is literally a song, which, as in Beaumarchais, he sings to the Countess. He has a distant model in Paisiello, 
the Count's first act serenade. Then Susanna has the first of her two arias. This one is pure action. She and the Countess amuse themselves by dressing up Carabino as a girl. Up until now, I have only mentioned arias, methodically avoiding any ensemble pieces. This emphatically does not imply that the ensembles are less interesting. On the contrary, they are the story's connective tissue. Recitatives, accompanied by a keyboard instrument, drive the plot forward with their rapid texts, but the ensembles give that intensity and depth. There are seven duets, two trios, one sextet, a minor masterpiece, and two extended finales. Though there were smaller steps taken before him, Mozart has purposefully and dramatically dismantled two massive tenets of operatic composition that preceded him. The strict division of serious opera, opera seria, and comedy, opera buffa, and the related alternation of action, text, recitative, forward dramatic mobility, with static moments of reflection, Arias. He accomplished all of this, and with the three Italian da Ponte operas, he massively raised the bar on all operatic composition up until and including the present. Nothing exemplifies this better than the two extended finales, constructed on a series of interlocking sections, each with its own distinct character, tempo, and dramatic purpose. Though each segment is distinct and identifiable. The music never stops, and its cumulative effect is to bring the first half of the opera to a rousing culmination. The overarching principle is simple and will serve most of the 19th century Italian opera with a model. The first part of the opera is expository, sets out the characters and the conflicts, and then turns it all loose. It goes until the dramatic situation and the struggle can go neither forward nor backward. It's a stalemate. Mozart provides a musical and dramatic climax and then lets everyone on stage and in the public calm down, ready to start again. I'm going to give you a super accelerated hearing of how the second act finale is constructed. It starts with the Count and the Countess alone, a duet in other words. Then by adding characters one by one, it goes from two to three, three to four, four to five, and it finally jumps to seven. Here it is. The Count suspects that the Countess is hiding a lover in the closet of her boudoir. Allegro, fast. Mm -hmm. 
To the astonishment of both, Susanna emerges from the closet. It's now a trio. Molto andante, slower, momentarily immobile. Susanna quickly and discreetly speaks to the Countess, who regains her composure. They align themselves against the Count. The shell-shocked effect is broken, setting up an allegro again. Figaro enters to the same G major as he did with the peasants in Act I. He tries to promote quick action for the wedding to Susanna. It's now a quartet. Still allegro, but a dance-like celebratory feeling. Mozart lifted this right out of a popular melody. The Count interrogates him. Andante, not so fast, the Count and Mozart seem to be saying. Conoscete, Signor Figaro, due 
After barely slipping out of trouble, Figaro is confronted now by Antonio, the gardener. He is Susanna's uncle. And his daughter, Barbarina, loves Carabino and at least is tolerant of the Count's attentions. Somebody has jumped out of the window of the Countess's bedroom on the geraniums. The gardener is upset and the Count again suspicious. It is now a quintet, Allegro Molto, very fast, like a tarantella, a nervous and restless dance that takes its name from the tarantula. Le cose ogni dice tar peggio, e poc'anzi può darsi di peggio, vide un uomo, signor mio, gitar giù, al balcone, vedete i garofani, in giardino, sì, cosa sento? Antonio the gardener is unceremoniously ushered out. Figaro, with the help of the Countess and Susanna, once again wiggles out of the Count's interrogation. The scene reverts to a quartet, and the tempo slows to a tense confrontation. Andante. Then, the last straw for Figaro. Marcellina, Bartolo's ex-housekeeper, who wishes to marry Figaro, much more on her later, arrives with the support of the same Bartolo and Don Basilio, the oily intrigante whom we know from the Barber of Seville. She is bringing a court case against Figaro. He must settle a debt or marry her. 
consternation on the part of Figaro Susanna and the Countess, elation for the others. Virtually all of the principal characters are on stage. The music accelerates, allegro assai, very fast. The excitement mounts, più allegro, faster still. Conflict, stalemate, climax, prestissimo, as fast as possible. The curtain crashes down on the pandemonium of the first half of the opera. I look forward to next time when we complete The Marriage of Figaro, and as I promised, we'll go into some of the political stories that involve Beaumarchais' very colorful life. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.